Welcome to Unorthodox, a weekly podcast from Tablet Magazine. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hey. And Senior Writer Leah Leibowitz. Give me the- Do we have any junior writers at Tablet? Um, we should get some <laughs> like, junior you, writers. You're a senior writer. We should get some junior writers. Right. Later in the show, we'll be talking with our guest Jew, painter Archie Rand, who in his new book illustrates each one of the 613 biblical commandments. And our guest Gentile is Catherine Burns, artistic director of The Moth. She's not really that Gentile. I mean, she's a New Yorker. She's married to a Jew. and But, you know, uh, a little warning for all of you having a driveway moment with your little tiny little Jews and Gentiles. Obscenities are likely to be uttered in our planned discussion of Mel Gibson. So if that's a problem for you, you know, take this to bed with your spouse and you know, share some headphones, but keep the kids out of it. <laughs> and more advice how to spice up your marriage. Right? <laughs> uh, menches and wenches. I want to start this week with uh, a bit of mail that we got from an, a vaguely hostile listener named Josh Ford. He wrote, what was the reason there was no mention of Mark Gaffney brouhaha on this week's podcast? I would think that since Mark Oppenheimer has written not one, but two pieces on the subject, and it's ignited a huge response in the Jewish community, it would be fodder for conversation. Not mentioning it felt like a dodge, and I can't figure out why it needed to be dodged. To refer so blithely to Barry Freundel, that's the peeping Tom Mikva rabbi, as pervy McPerverstein, and then not talk about Gaffney was just so disorienting coming from a host I think at least tries to be rigorously honest about issues. Okay, well, thank you, Josh. What gives? Josh Ford. P.S. Getting Liel to talk more about Torah and less about guns makes for a much better podcast. Um, oh. First of all, can I, can I take a stab? Bruhaha, like, started as an anti-Semitic term that comes from Baruchata. Did it really? Yes. Is that yes, true? Yes, I, we know this because oh my God. someone wrote it on tablet. Someone referenced a brouhaha, and someone wrote in saying, you know, this actually has anti-Semitic roots. I think it was in France when it, like people would start to say, like, brouhaha, and it became something. Wow. Yeah. You I will provide a link to that. Day. Josh, you were, you were such an anti-Semite. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Why do you hate the Jews? Why do you hate the Jews, Josh Ford? That is amazing. Isn't that the best fun fact? That is a great fun fact. Like, that I is... get to just, like, call random people anti-Semites when they say brouhaha. <laughs> And then once you have it in your head, it's really hard to not say brouhaha. Right. Like, <laughs> the only thing you want to say is What other word is there? What else? There's no synonym, right? <laughs> and Josh, I mean, dude, come on. Cut cut Mark some slack. He, he wrote two pieces. He wrote pieces in Tablet. He talked about this. He lived. He had to live this. Like, Mark Gaffney, you know, by the way, for those who haven't read these pieces, I wrote a piece in The Times and then I wrote two pieces in Tablet about this guy who um, was an Orthodox rabbi, then a kind of lefty Jewish renewal, mystical rabbi, then is and is now a New Age, uh, conscious capitalism, spiritual workplace consultant to, among others, John Mackey, the CEO of Whole Foods. Why has he had so many different lives and different incarnations? Yeah, it's like you're, I'm missing a point in, in this. In part second. because uh, in each community he goes into, he ends up being accused of various sexual uh, misdeeds and... Um, uh, inconsistencies with the rabbinic spirit, shall we say. And so I've written a couple, three pieces now about him. His defense, just to be clear, is that he had too much chakti. Am I, am I yeah. correct? In well, that too much sexual The energy? defense that some of his defenders uh, make for him, you know, speak out on his behalf, is that Mark has so much shakti, which is a Sanskrit word for energy, that is used all the time in the New Age community. Uh, he's so much shakti, it just overflowed. It bubbled over. He didn't know how to control it. And therefore, he had to sleep with multiple women at once and uh, tell various lies. And when he was 19, uh, fool around with a 13-year-old. And when he was 24, fool around with a 16-year-old, whom he was in a rabbinic teaching role with. I, I mean, it. but how could he not? He had so much shakti. That is some crazy, crazy stuff. 
And I'll tell you, not real. I'll tell you another thing. Mark shucked the flip up. I'll just tell you one final thing, which is that I've learned about this, which is I also got a lot of really angry blowback from people in the New Age community who said, well, now he, he people are going to forgive him because you've given his excuses. And I said, but his excuses are like Shakti and now I'm polyamorous. So all my previous, you know, you have to understand my previous actions in light of my newfound polyamory. And I said to 99.99% of Americans, those aren't good excuses. Like saying I have a lot of Shakti and I'm polyamorous. Mark, to 99% the, of Americans, these aren't even real words. Right, right. <laughs> But to people in the new age community, like that was that was a profound and dangerous excuse that people will believe and allow him to keep doing the things he's doing. So what I learned, among other things, was there's this new age world in which all the presuppositions that the rest of us work with, such as there is sin, there is evil, polyamory is not an excuse for extremely bad behavior. They float away. They just they just they just vanish into like beautiful. I should investigate this community. <laughs> beautiful How's little your dust. Shakti? My Shakti is okay. The word of the day is Shakti. Liel, you're going to talk about Torah, not guns today. In other news of the Jews, David Bowie died. Is that a Jewish story? That is a universal story. Yeah. It's a universal story. It's actually a, like a t- extraterrestrial. You know, we don't get too many messiahs, you know. When is one either departs... one of is either one of you in that camp that seemed to predominate my Facebook community that said, "But for this David Bowie song in 1983, I would have slipped my wrists. He saved my life." No, I'm part of the, the community where like my Instagram feed is just like pictures of him and like stupid captions. I'm just like, stop. I'm in that camp because I'm 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 older. Stephanie, so like music. David, am I, am I still music young? meant something to us. You're still young. <laughs> even in 2016. Okay, it's Checking. 2016. We had the attention young. span for a four-minute song. Um, yeah, man, I can remember very, very long, very difficult summers that had it not been for you know Space Oddity, the album, uh, songs like Song and Comedy and and others. Um, there's this amazing line in the last song of the album, which I forget what it's called. But it goes, the sun machine is coming down and we're going to have a party. And he sings it with this childlike, naive, you know, conviction. And it, it, it tells you that things are going to be okay. If, if you're 16 and you're not entirely convinced that things are going to be okay, David Bowie is a very reassuring voice to hear. For me, the David Bowie song that means the most to me is one that I think of not from my youth but from two or three years ago did either of you see the perks of being a wallflower the movie yes based on the very popular young adult books and the movies with like emma with watson, emma watson yeah. yeah and and ezra miller i think it's a brilliant it's the best 1985 teen flick that was made in 2013 oh, I was about no because i'm a straight adult male uh so. yeah well who apparently has very particular ideas about masculinity Yes. Yes. Correct. So, strong Shakti. So I strong Shakti. So I've seen it twice, and there's a scene where <laughs> there's a scene where Emma Watson stands up. She's going over a bridge in Pittsburgh, uh, and and it's nighttime, and she goes through this tunnel, and the lights are shining on her, and she stands up and kind of puts out her arms in this crucifix-like way when Heroes comes on the radio, and it's this, and there's this moment where they say, "What is the song? I've heard this song before. What is it?" And they're like, "I don't know what it is, but we got turn it up because who knows when we'll hear it again." And she puts out her arms and just sort of screams into the night as Heroes is playing and i've it's so beautiful that i've reinscribed that memory back into my 12 year old self it's like for me it's now as you've, you've lived it as if i lived it in 1986 so you are emma watson but i am a 12 year old girl but i mean what incredible grace to release your album knowing that you're dying say not a word about it you know take these incredible vivid pictures that he took just on friday looking like 
full of life, and then just go just on your go. own terms. Also, in the news of the Jews, a fire broke out at the Jerusalem offices of B'Tselem, the Israeli human rights organization. Arson is suspected. In Germany, you can once again... No. What? Arson's not suspected? No. Why do you correct every... Well, it was suspected yesterday. It was suspected for 40 minutes before facts (laughs) creeped in. Why you got to come in with your facts, Leo? I know. Sorry to burst your liberal media bubble. In Germany, you can once again buy Mein Kampf, which had been banned in 1945, but is now out in a new edition. Speaking of 80s, Toon Smith's <laughs> new edition. And Emma Watson reads the audiobook. Jerry Lewis Who made... Who would read the audiobook for my <laughs> No, I say Gilbert Gottfried. Yeah, that would be good. And then I walked into the beer hall and saw the Jews. That would be amazing. <laughs> Gilbert Gottfried, we love you if you're listening. Yeah, we please need him. Please do Mein Kampf audiobook. Uh, debut it on our... Read the first page on our show. That would be perfect. I'm going to call Gilbert this call afternoon. Gilbert. Call yeah. Gilbert. Um, and as far as we know, Israeli supermodel Bar Raffaele is still pregnant. She will uh, be. The, the baby who many Jews expect will be the Messiah because it will carry the genes of the Israeli Victoria's Secret uh, supermodel. As far as we know, is still in utero. And uh, despite all the protestations from Jews everywhere who say it's bad karma to talk about a pregnancy in progress, we have no choice but to update you and say, Bar Raphael is still expecting a beautiful baby. Look, she did post an Instagram of the pregnancy test. So, like, I think the t- all the, like, propriety and, and superstition were done. All right. Done I'm going to out-young you here. But the Instagram to follow isn't Bar Raphael. It's Bar Raphael's girlfriends who are having an amazing time posting photos of her looking super ugly and, like, morning sickness. It's kind of awesome. So they're yeah. not they are not really her girlfriends. No, they're her girlfriends. She's like, you know, supermodel. Yeah, they're her now, girlfriends who are a little sick time. Is that right? She yeah. has a girlfriend. She's letting her girlfriends post oh, yeah, ugly yeah, pictures yeah. of her. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, she's so chill. She is. How about Ricky Gervais at the Golden Globes? Had a little moment with Mel Gibson. I want to say something nice about Mel before he comes out. Um, so... Oh, yeah. Okay. Here you go. Um, A few years ago, they had a little angry moment where Ricky Gervais made fun of Mel's drinking and penchant, his penchant for anti-Semitic brouhaha's. (laughs) (laughs) And they reunited. They reunited at the Golden Globes this year where uh, Gervais also asked Mel Gibson, uh, referring to his famous traffic stop with the cop, what is a sugar tits? Is that, is that how he said it? So here, this is this is parents where where you uh, remove children uh, from the vicinity uh, if if you wish. We're gonna we're gonna take a you know a breather. Okay. Um, here's the thing about profanities. As as someone whose vocabulary is about you know ninety eight percent bad words, it's really 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 hard to come up with a really really good bad word. You know, it's not just 
tossing out the first vulgarity that comes to mind, a really good bad word should really like injure you. You know, you should feel violated. And the first time you hear something like sugar tits, you're like, oh, my God. Yeah, I feel dirty now. I feel dirtier it's than disgusting. I. It's yeah. so disgusting and wonderful. And when I and heard so that. so vivid. Like, it's right. so Right. And when I heard this, like, I have so much respect for Mel Gibson now. That is hard to come by. Especially when you're, like, completely wasted. Yeah. The best part of that was they were, like, Ricky Gervais was introducing him. And he's like, you know, I blame, I, I blame NBC for having to do this. We all know who Mel blames. And they kept cutting to um, Harvey Weinstein and Ari Emanuel, like, <laughs> Okay, reaction shot from the Jews on one. It's like what? What? It does. It does make one respect the sort of connoisseurship, the sort of the the deep knowledge, the deep structural knowledge that Gibson has of of the cuss word. Now, Liel, of course, it, we can't not discuss your favorite. I I have I have a favorite, it, which which I take. Um, I don't take credit did, for for coining, but I do take credit for popularizing. Are, if you, you are, is that a Jennifer Lee? <laughs> in a very 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 narrow circle of people? Uh, yeah, that that word is cocksniff which is uh, a play on the old Dickensian peck sniff with some modern filth thrown in. And it could mean pretty much... like detailed and right? kind of graphic. Yeah, right. It, it takes you to... Palpable. A, it yeah, takes palpable, you, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's vile, uh, but that's what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to you know, titillate you enough. We, 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 we become so... People, we become so accustomed to bad words. But we, by the we way, don't even... why is Mel Gibson back? Like, he wasn't promoting anything. He was just there to, like, share a clip of Mad Max, which why he apparently started one away? day. But he, like, literally looks, he's never really, like, my type, but he looks like an actual just, like, piece of leather now. He just looks so gross. Yeah, he's almost in George Hamilton land. Yeah, and he, like, kind of joked about the, the traffic stop. He said, like, oh, that wasn't me. It's like, no, like, we, it was definitely you. You were, like, definitely an anti-Semite. Why is he back? It's so annoying. Every town needs one. Come on. <laughs> I feel the, like we have one. He's, he's, still, he's, kind like, of, he's the village anti-Semite. Is his last movie like village, The Beaver? Crazy, crazy. Uh, the Beaver was a really good movie. You know, it's like the crazy yes, uncle. You're, a, you're who, an apologist. Who screams things. I just, you know, I like what I like. I like Mel Gibson. What can I say? And now our world-famous featured Gentile of the Week. Catherine Burns, the Scottishly named, gentilically named Catherine Burns, is the Moth's longtime artistic director. As one of the lead directors of the Moth's main stage for more than a decade, she has helped hundreds of people. It must be into the thousands now, don't you think? It may be. It may be. Uh, helped numerous people craft their stories for live storytelling events. She co-produces the Moth Radio Hour and lovingly oversees the Moth's podcast, which is available on iTunes. She's also the editor of The Moth, 50 True Stories, which is a good little book. Thank you. I really like it. Uh, Before joining the Moth, Catherine directed and produced television and interviewed everyone from Ozzy Osbourne to Martha Stewart and Howard Stern. Who, of those three, Catherine, who did you could you rank them in terms of who who gave good interview? Ozzy, Martha, Howard. Howard was the best. Of course. And he was like really kind to me, which was sort of funny and unexpected. I expect it, actually. Yeah, he was really there's this crowd of like really rude reporters sort of elbowing out and I was trying to be polite and he sort of reached in, plucked me out, and then gave me my own interview. And it was such a thrilling moment. I was really young. And he's like, She's being polite. And I was like, that, that, this will never work again. But So the moth has become among the latte sipping set, kind of a thing. Right. I mean, it's a it's a cultural password. Oh, you know about the moth? You know, I've been to a moth event. I Like I've told a story at the moth and there are people for whom that's the most impressive thing about me. <laughs> uh, do include you, your wife. Nice. <laughs> do you feel that 
thingness in your life? Like, are people just blown away that you help produce this public radio and podcasting sensation? And if so, how has it changed your life? Wow. Um, I think the answer is sometimes. Like, when I, we're still at that point where when I tell somebody I'm with the moth, half the time, and this has totally shifted just in the last few years, they get really excited and maybe they're a fan and we talk about their favorite story. But sometimes still, it's just a blank look. You hear so many stories. Was there ever a story which you heard that left you completely mind blown? Yeah, I mean, I have to say, like, I feel like it still happens all the time. Really? I mean, one of the my most recent was we had this guy, Carl Pilatari, and he was one of the only Americans in the nuclear reactor when the earthquake struck in Japan. Oh, wow. And I can just still kind of see where I was standing when he first told me and one of our directors, Meg Bowles, a version of the story, because you just like, we were all just like bawling and it was so intense. Like I keep saying that the moment I don't react that way anymore is the moment someone else gets my job. Does trauma make for a better story? A lot of stories that get a lot of buzz seem to be trauma related, but I, but it, they could also make the worst stories, I would think. I think it's like the best and the worst. You have to be at a point where you know that you're ready to tell the story. And that's one of the trickiest things that we ever deal with. Like it's like because sometimes, you know, people usually it's a little bit of time. Like we have this joke that you have to, like, it has to be five years from a divorce or 10 years from a death before you were allowed to tell it. <laughs> Although recently, interesting, a psychologist told us it should be the reverse, that divorce is actually much more traumatizing than, than death, um, uh, presumably for those who are still alive. But anyway, <laughs> um, so, but it really depends on the person. Like, you have someone like the, the comedian Tig Notaro is famous mm-hmm. for having walked out the day of her breast cancer diagnosis and told a brilliant story about it on stage in front of a bunch of people. But then some people might still not be ready to tell that story. I had a... Holocaust survivor who was one of the kids on the kinder transport and 70 years had gone by and she could still only tell the story of what happened to her in the third person. So it's like it really is just it depends on the person and where they're at. And a lot of our job is to try to help them assess where they're at. And it can be very tricky. How do you find them? Do you have a network of good story spotting yeah. scouts? Yeah, it's like a hugely vast network. And we follow up on everything. You know, like we might come in and have an email like, oh, I was with Ed Norton at a party and he's like the most amazing raconteur and you have to find him and here's like his assistant's email. And like the next message could be my Pakistani cab driver right now told me this incredible story about his grandfather and he'll, here's his cell phone number. And we follow up on everything equally. We also have a pitch line where people can call in from all over the world and leave a two-minute version of the story. And it sounds like one of these things that you would just say, but that would really not work. But it actually works. We get incredible people who call in. And so about one story a month comes from that pitch line. What's your pitch line? What's the number? It's one eight seven 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 nine nine moth This kind of reminds me of hearing an interview with some of the Saturday Night Live cast members who talk about, like, what makes a good host and how, like, some of the biggest stars are actually not good hosts. Yeah. Are there ever really high-profile people who you just, like, who can't tell a story? Definitely. I mean... They're so named names. Yeah. (laughs) What's I think that there's some people... I mean, I think for high-profile people, it can be very scary to be vulnerable. Like, the number one quality of a great moth storyteller is their willingness to be vulnerable and to be open and honest, to kind of tell on themselves. The best moth stories aren't about stories of triumph. They're stories of failure and stories of the time you messed up and maybe what you learned. And so that can be really scary for someone in the public eye. I mean, we have have almost never been able to get politicians to tell stories because they're not willing to tell a story about how they made a mistake. Actors, it can be scary because they, they don't want to go out on stage and play themselves. A lot of actors like to hide behind their scripts. 
Um, and so for them to go out on stage and just be themselves and, again, tell about something, talk about something maybe a little bit difficult, it can be tricky. But the ones who are willing to go there are so amazing. We just had John Totoro, and it's one of my favorite stories ever. We're going to put it out soon. And so um, you have a question for us that comes with a story. Yeah. So I grew up in the South, in, the, in rural Alabama, and when people die in the South, at least with my family, part of the, de- the ritual of putting them in the ground is like, it's a slow ritual. It takes several days. It can take a week. It's because they're so heavy. Because they're, so- <laughs> they're on those Southern diets. <laughs> totally. <laughs> they have like 12 <laughs> people pulled off the farm, like help lower them in. All that fried chicken um, and cheese grits. Yep. But yeah, so, and, and part of that involves the family handling the body. So one of my first memories as a child is my grandfather laid out in my grandmother's parlor, dead, I was four, and my mother and grandmother kind of petting him on the head. And then when my grandmother died, there was actually this sort of almost embarrassing incident in the funeral parlor where my mom freaked out and I think sort of channeling her grief in this weird way, became convinced that the funeral parlor had lied to her. And then my grandmother was lying there dressed from the waist up, but naked from the waist down. Like this somehow she was just not in her... The top uh, of the coffin was open? Yeah, the, so the right. top of the coffin was open and the, from the waist down, she, my mother became paranoid that she wasn't wearing her like pantyhose and her panties and her like little etc. So my mama actually starts digging down in the coffin with her hand to try to confirm that my grandmother was wearing clothes. And I'm 24 years old and mortified. There's all these people standing around, and I'm like, Mama, Mom. Mama, Mama. And my stepfather's like, just let her do it. <laughs> like, okay. So, Stop poking dead grandma. But this is really a part of how we say goodbye, is like that willingness to interact with, with the body and connect. So when I started dating my my now husband. Your big Jewy husband. My big Jewy husband. <laughs> um Really early in our relationship, his grandfather died, and it was like, ah, run home, grab the clothes, diddle up, we're off, because we have to get him to the ground tomorrow. And I was like, what? And I was so shocked by how quickly everything happened. And in the, the one time, when I finally told my mother-in-law this story about my mama and my grandmother, and was she or was she not wearing panties, my mother-in-law was horrified, like just the thought that you would touch it, your loved one's dead. But I could just tell, like it took her a few days to look at me this right again. And so I guess my question is... In a world where, you know, some rituals stay and some rituals go, this seems to be still so important to almost everyone I know who identifies in any way with being Jewish. And why is that? Before we answer that question, I'd like to say to my children, if you're listening, if you touch my private parts when I'm dead, (laughs) I'm going to come back and haunt you for the rest of your freaking lives. (laughs) Continue. Catherine, so you're asking us, why do Jews bury their bodies so fast rather than lingering a bit more to say goodbye? Is that... I think that is my question. Is that the question? Yeah. And why so, does this seem like there's just no, and also no handling of the dead in any way? Well, like, it seems like it's taboo. That's not quite right. Okay. That's not quite right. So it is true, and, and maybe Liel and Stephanie will help me out here, but my understanding is that it is true that we, we're supposed to bury the dead within 24 hours, except on the Sabbath, that you wait longer. You don't, that is true. You don't get married, circumcised, or buried on the Sabbath. But but otherwise, if it's you don't die on a Friday, you're buried within 24 hours, right? So that is that's tradition. It's it's halakha. I don't know if it's from Torah or if it's if it's rabbinic tradition after Torah. But that's very much the law. That said, while they're preparing the body for burial, there are shomrim. There are people who sit with the body and read psalms to it. And mm-hmm. I was actually recently asked if I would do this. Um, a wonderful member of our synagogue, Bob Oaks, uh, wonderful man. 
died. And um, there were people staying up with him overnight to read Psalms until the morning when the funeral directors would prepare him for the funeral, which was going to be that day. Did you volunteer? And, well, I did volunteer. And then it turned out they didn't need me. Mm. And I was both relieved because I wanted my sleep, but I was also disappointed because I thought this could be kind of amazing. And I want to say that when my grandfather, Walter, died, and he was someone without a lot of observant, Jewishly knowledgeable or observant relatives, my mother's cousin, Susan, said to my mother, who was in Philadelphia with her dad when he died, Susan said, let me come over. I'll sit with the body. And in something she does at her synagogue, she's one of the people who will sit with the dead. And so there is this beautiful tradition that you, you're supposed to stay with the body. You don't leave the body alone. There's also a, 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 the whole practice of preparing the body for burial involves a very intricate process of washing because the body will meet its maker uh, sans pantyhose, but with with a uh, you know intensity of of, of purity. And and who washes the body? Is it the rabbi? Uh, it's it's a special community of religious people. It's the okay. burial societies. Are, yeah, the burial societies oh. who, who, who do can that. Be cool. any, who can be any Jews? But they're everywhere. I mean, like every community really every has. Community this has is kind them. of amazing. That's so cool. There's the A-team of the dead. But for me, there's also, it's, I've always thought of it as a practical matter. Like when, some, when a loved one dies, it's actually really helpful, I think, in a lot of ways to have the structure. You're going to be buried within 24 hours. Then you're going to sit shiva for one week. And then you sort of have this all in place. And then it sort of allows you, I mean, I'm sure this wasn't the intent at the time that it was established, but it has created sort of a nice scheduled ritual. Like you you do this, then you do this, and then everyone brings food over and everyone sort of knows what to do. And you go into like morning mode, basically. I wonder if there really is a zombie apocalypse, if there'll be a market difference between goyish zombies and Jewish zombies. We'll be cleaner. (laughs) Right. It'll be like Jewish zombies, like, guys, we went underground like... 20 hours after we died we're like clean and like in good shape and And the groom's like it took a week and a half for me (laughs) Catherine Burns Gentile thank you for being with us (laughs) thank you so much this is so much fun I really appreciate it thank Thank you Before we go to our Jew of the Week, I had another David Bowie thought, which is, this was a guy who all of my gay friends read as gay. And and he had had gay encounters, it seems. Though it actually seems he did not have long-term gay relationships. It seems that he was... Like he, he two, was like 80-20 straight. Yeah, two if, marriages. To be blunt about this. Were there two marriages? Iman wasn't the first marriage? I don't think so. I think it was only A couple two. marriages. And also like numerous affairs with women that were not for public performance. Like women would come. Groupies came out of the woodwork. He slept with me. He slept with me. This is a guy who seemed to be like 80-20 straight and was totally comfortable being read as gay and in fact performing in some sense gay for much of his career. I think that's kind of remarkable. Well, I think that he was one of the first major artists in in recent memory to embrace like the gender fluidity that we now actually come to take for granted in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah. And so to be able to allow yourself to be read as either one of those things just was kind of like impressive actually, at the time. He actually didn't give a damn. Well, it's kind of amazing. And now our Jewish guest of the week, Archie Rand, 66 years old. Is that right? Um, yeah, I think so. Or yeah. as they say, three years younger than David Bowie was. Uh, two years younger than David Bowie. So. Was, was he, I thought he was 69, 68. How old am I? He was born in 47. I was born in 49. Do the math. He was kind of a a peer of yours. Yes. 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 Uh, From Bensonhurst. And your murals on the inside of B'nai Yosef Synagogue in Brooklyn were so controversial that the great Posek Rabbi Moshe Feinstein had to weigh in to say that they were kosher. You're a painter. 
You are in numerous collections. You are one of the great, I would say one of the great figurative painters working. But is that okay to call you a figurative painter? Sure. I mean... Sure. You want to get back to David Bowie for a second? Yeah. Yeah. So, Arch, do the guest, Archie Rand. He's here to talk about lots of things. We will definitely talk about your new book in which you do one painting for every one of the 613 commandments. But could we get back... Did you have a David Bowie thought? I have a, I have a David Bowie thought. Uh, when I was in high school, I had an enormous number of really great musicians in high school that uh, I went to school with. One of them was Dave Liebman, who ended up with Miles Davis. I used to play piano in a band that he had in high school. And a year ahead of him was his piano player in his band, who was my piano teacher, Mike Garson. And Mike Garson was David Bowie's band leader for umpteen decades. So uh, I knew Mike very well. So there's a David Bowie connection. What high school was this? Lafayette High School in Brooklyn. What I love about old New Yorkers, not that you're old, but I mean, you go back in New York. What people who grew up in New York is like whatever high school they went to, Midwood, Lafayette, you know, DeWitt Clinton, they, they went to school with five Nobel Prize laureates, three great jazz musicians, Two Hollywood directors. That's it's New like, York for it's, you. And Barbara Streisand. And Barbara Streisand. It's just, it's just <laughs> amazing to me. Yeah. So. Okay. You don't get that when you grow up in Springfield, Massachusetts. Um, I don't know. It depends on where you look. <laughs> you know, some famous drug dealer. You know. <laughs> hey, hey. Whoa. I know from Springfield. I was, I was there on a bike trip once, and I parked my bike outside a church to go and look at the windows. And was I came, it stolen? And I came outside, and my, uh, my saddlebags were gone. Yeah. Speaking of churches, you know, um, y- y- here you are, this great artist who's clearly inspired by, you know, religious materials and traditions. Growing up, did you ever have that moment in which you just wished that the place where your parents took you to worship had as lovely paintings and iconography and statues as the Goyim have? Yeah. In fact, uh, I have this memory. It may be an invented memory, which is even more interesting, that when I started B'nai Yosef, which is the murals that we haven't talked about yet, uh, I had this memory of having been in a synagogue when I was a child that had the tomb of Rachel at evening with stars in the sky painted on the walls. Now, I may have conflated that with a memory of a box of Hanukkah candles. <laughs> <laughs> but when you're, when you're... So starved were you for visual imagery. So <laughs> starved. But I do, I do have... In fact, I recreated that in B'nai Yosef. Um, I painted that, that same tomb of Rachel in, in, in evening just to uh, put it back on the wall. But yeah, I used to look at the stained glass windows, which were a drag because they were basically uh, kind of uh, floral motifs. And uh, the synagogue I went to was very large. It was one of these imperial synagogues. Um, and uh, yeah, as as most kids are, I was fairly bored. You know. <laughs> one of the things that I noticed when we when we had a long conversation a few months ago is that, you know, you're you're a worldly fellow. You're a literate fellow. You're, you want to talk about jazz. You want to talk about poetry. You want to talk about Torah. Most visual artists, my my mantra with them is whatever you do, don't talk to them because they're so hopelessly inarticulate. Asking them to explain their work is like asking, you know, the fish to dance on the bicycle to explain water to you. I mean, they are simply hopeless. They they communicate with people through their work. So if you want to know about their work, look at their work. Do you ever feel when you're talking to other painters, holy shit, I'm the literate guy. And they're like, all of these other people are totally inarticulate. They don't know anything. They don't read. They just paint. And you actually do these other things. Well, most of the people that I talk to about aesthetics or culture are not painters. I respect that painters have 
a visual intellect which is not only parallel to but superior to the kind of conversational intellect that we take for granted in academia. So my friends who are painters may in fact, not all, some are incredibly intelligent and articulate about it, uh, but I take their visual product as being the product of their their intelligence offering. Uh, I was brought up mostly with poets. Um, my father used to read Shakespeare and Rudyard Kipling and Nathaniel Hawthorne to us on Sundays. And uh, when I was very young, I fell into the St. Mark's Poetry Group, so I got used to talking about culture among people who dealt with words. Um, So, you know, when I deal with painters, I have a story about that. Uh, Can I tell the story? Okay. Okay. I'll, what do you I'll, think this is? The moth? I'll, I'll, I'll you're going to tell us a story on, t- on our I'll, podcast. I'm going to tell you a story. The nerve. I was I was at an opening for Malcolm Morley in Washington, and uh, being you know, kind of Malcolm's Sancho Panza, I was standing at the door. Malcolm was sitting, trying to keep away from the uh, from from the mob outside. You know, acting very pensive. And I stood at the door, and this guy comes in the room dressed like Colonel Schweppes. He had on a double-breasted jacket and the white beard. And, and I, I recognized this guy as being like the hot Washington painter who never showed outside of Washington and was generally a creep. Um, you what know, was the, his name? Uh, I don't want to say it. Actually, he's actually rather unknown. And to this day, no one's known his name. But at the time, he was sort of known. <laughs> and it couldn't have happened to a worse guy. Right. <laughs> to a worse guy. And he barges through the room and he heads straight for the door. And my job was to kind of stop him, to let Malcolm have his solitude. And he pushes right past me. And I felt like like, like the guy who let Reagan get shot, you know, the, 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 uh, the agent. I figured, oh, my God. And he comes up and he gets down on his knees right in front of Malcolm, like he's his old best friend. And he says, um, doesn't it occur to you, Malcolm, that the, that the two of us are involved in something very similar? We're all pushing the, the frontal picture plane up to the foreground. And he starts talking this art nonsense to him. And Malcolm's sitting there looking very hurt. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I've let this in. And, like, i got to get rid of this guy. But I forgot that I was dealing with a great master. I forgot. And uh, that's, that's to my discredit. And right in the middle of this guy's insane blurb of, of, of aesthetics, Malcolm grabs him by the wrist with one hand really hard. You could hear it slap. And he grabs him by the lapel of his double-breasted suit and pulls him within two inches of his face. And he looks at the guy like a crazy person. And he says, did it ever occur to you that your eyeballs are like two oysters floating around in the holes of a bowling ball? <laughs> and the guy goes, ah! And he runs out of the room. <laughs> so I'm going to use that one sometime. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, different painters have different kinds of, uh, of, of, of intellectual conversation. Some painters are very theoretically involved. They'll talk to you for hours about the the current French philosophers and why their work is in sync with that. And I have no interest in that. But a lot of painters do that. And they're very popular now. And so let's talk about the mitzvah. Okay. It's an amazing project. It's an amazing book. <laughs> it, it's called, so it should, we should say, it's called The 613. And it's 613 pages long. And each each page has a painting that illustrates, sometimes in an obvious way, sometimes in a metaphorically distant way, whatever the, the mitzvah is and there's 613 mitzvot in in the Old Testament. I, I was going to ask. So studying this, uh, looking, thinking about all these mitzvot. I mean, if you asked, I think anyone but the most seasoned rabbinic expert, uh, what these mitzvot, what these commandments are, I'm sure people would come up with a few that are kind of obvious. But, but you, but you went deep. I mean, you went all in. Was there any mitzvah that you read that really startled you? That that really 
that you really loved, that you really loathed? Well, uh, what occurred to me when I was going through the mitzvot was that um, a few of them were uh, pretty pretty extreme and that what you need to keep a community together walking through the uh, desert to keep them somehow unified. So when they have things like, you know, blowing up a city of idol worship, uh, I was rereading that right after ISIS had blown up Palmyra. And I thought, you know, the big difference between us and everybody else is we've got these, but most conservative reform and you know uh, some some even observant Jews are not familiar with all the six thirteen, and that's good. <laughs> uh, but it is. But I chose it because it is the armature. It's really the spinal column of uh, of observant practice. And I thought, if you're going to do something Jewish, this is something you really have to hit. You know, I had I had been doing the Psalms. I had been doing the Parshas. Um, I did uh, two two series on the Shemona Esrei. I, I did a, l- a lot of work. I did the 39 Forbidden Labors of Shabbos. I figured, you know, let's just go for broke on this one. This is amazing. And my favorite thing about this book is to just open it to a random page and read read it. Like, 119, family shall pay an annual half-shekel temple tax. <laughs> Only a half-shekel. We do, we do that. Only a half-shekel. That sounds great. That's right. But you have to figure it in inflation. This is one of my favorites. Uh this is number 332 from Leviticus 21:23. A blemished priest must not enter the temple. Uh, talk to us about how this comes to life, because this is a very particular haunting expression. Okay. Um, the first thing I have to make clear is that these pictures are not illustrations, and this is going to take me a couple of sentences to set up. When I was doing a lot of the earlier commissioned work, once I was given the Heksher by Rav Moshe Feinstein, uh, I realized that in order for Jewish work to be considered kosher under rabbinic law, it had to be subservient to the text, and that there was a that is the the illustrate the the pictures basically had to illustrate something. So a rabbi would say, "What's this? Why is this here?" And you'd have to tell them; otherwise, it wasn't kosher. And my feeling was is that. Judaism was not always an iconoclastic religion, and we know that because we have Dura Europus. So we had 2,000 years of catch-up to play, and I wasn't going to do it doing illustrations. So what I needed to do was make the visual primary. Uh, That means I had to have a picture so catchy that the text became something that was an appendage to it, which is sort of un-Jewish by contemporary terms, but not by Dury-Europas terms, not by the What's terms... What's Dury-Europa? Oh, Dury-Europas was a series of murals that were found in a second-century synagogue in Syria that were unearthed in 1932, and they're horrifyingly beautiful. Um, they are figurative paintings. Uh, nobody's wearing a head covering. The hand of God is coming down from heaven to mess around in Ezekiel's Valley of Dry Bones. Uh, everything you can possibly think of, beautifully painted uh, in this Talmud era shul. And it's quite possible that people who wrote the Talmud, in fact, were davening at Dury Europus or a num- any number of shuls like this. And it occurred to me that, that art had to be re-injected back into Judaism as a primary, not a secondary, because I was tired of seeing guys with beards holding staffs and wearing cloaks and stuff like that. Because yeah, there's a lot of crappy Jewish art. It's awful. It's absolutely there's awful. There's a lot of crappy shtetl art of, of Hasids, basically, uh, doing pious things. Yeah, well, and there's also a lot of crappy art of guys who say they're Kabbalistic and they have some kind of abstract painting with a mug and swirls floating. and yeah, swirls. swirls, a lot of swirls, exactly. colorful swirls, exactly, lots of swirls. So, how did this and, tradition inv- evolve? How did this iconoclastic tradition become? 
Well, my the norm. Fe- my feeling is that um, when you have a painting, unlike any other art form, unlike music, dance, theater, film, literature, uh, which are all temporal. When you have a painting, it's a 24-hour transmission. That is, you can go, you can, you know, put on a Shlomo Karlbach record. You know, you can go and eat eat at Mendy's. Uh, you can come home and and open up a page of an art scroll, Mishnah Torah. You can feel very, very Jewish. You can have a nice glazel warmst, you know, while you're sitting doing it. And then at uh, three in the morning, if you're hungry, you can have a ham sandwich because, you know, you've, you've partaken in those aspects of Jewish culture, but then you can re-secularize yourself. A painting doesn't do that. A painting transmits 24-7, seven days a week. So if you hang a painting on the wall, it claims territory. And as Jews became more and more transient, this became more and more offensive to non-Jews, that buildings should be claimed as a permanent place, and it became a liability for Jews to do such a thing. So I think it was a sort of combined agreement between the rabbis and anti-Semites that uh, painting was simply causing trouble in Judaism because of the permanent transmission that it that it had as part of its nature. And... Uh, in order, in order to re, in order to regain a certain kind of, of power, um, and paintings are power, um, they're magic. They have to be reinvested back into the religion. I had a show of some Shmona Esrei paintings called the Nineteen, at Hebrew Union College, and the critic David Cohn, uh, gave it a very nice review. And at the end, he said it was a sort of proto-Zionist. Uh, activity doing these paintings. And I thought, you know, in a certain sense, he actually gets it, although I wanted to keep the 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 global politics distant from it. The community politics are very definitely on my mind. That is, Judaism needs pictures in order to to coagulate itself and uh, and reestablish itself as something that is simply not a transient or a diaspora religion because paintings are permanent. Well, I mean, that that's the amazing thing, you know, thinking uh, about your, your work. Um, it is so fascinating that an artist of such stature and capacity would come, you know, back to this, you know, difficult and barren field. And it seems like your your mission is almost more religious than it is artistic, right? You're, you're trying to, to kind of evolve a tradition that has to do with much more than simply art. Yes, well, I was I was brought up at a time when the critic Clement Greenberg was holding sway in New York, and Clem, Clem sort of loved me. He sort of adopted me in a way. And I was very, very young, and Clem's whole notion was that art should sort of fade into nothing, make no statement, and, uh, and that Jews as a people um, should basically evaporate, if not convert, so that there wouldn't be any more anti-Semitism. And this was a, a post-war feeling that was translated into the, the, into, into the visual. And what I was doing the murals at B'nai Yosef Synagogue at that time, and I noticed that there was some, some animosity that was directed towards me by some of my peers who were painters. And I thought some of this could be based on the, the fact that I'm doing figurative work with an abstract group of artists, but I think some of it was based on on it being Jewish. And I was I was hit with one particular instance of outright um, anti-Jewish sentiment. One, one artist uh, told me to go back and hang myself with my Jewish tie in Brooklyn, uh, whereupon my wife Maria got furious and we pulled the rug out from this guy. But uh, 
it was uh, it, it was it was kind of traumatic. And, That's and, some hardcore shit. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, this is this is this is this is mob stuff. Well, what I wanted to say about the six thirteen was that to follow up on what I was saying about the visual, is that the the pictures are meant to cause a synapse. That is, these are things that most people would never ever read, if not even know about in their lifetime. So I figure you just opened a page and you said, well, this is one of my favorites. And I figure that's good. I got a, an email from a rabbi two days ago who said, why does, you know, not to profane the name of God have a giraffe? What does that mean? And I wrote back and I said, look, I'm going to tell you something I'm not going to divulge to anybody. But now that I'm on the radio, I'll divulge it to everybody. I said, the giraffe has no vocal cords. <laughs> so basically it's mute. And when there's a rocket ship, when I talk about tefillin, it's because tefillin is supposed to break through the seven layers of heaven and get to the throne, of, the feet of the throne of God. You know, so the visual analogies there, but not all of them are that clear in my head. Some of them are completely nonsensical. And because I know that human beings are hardwired to make some connection between the narrative and the picture, that people will look at these and think about these a lot longer than they ordinarily would if they ever even came in contact with them. So the book is kind of inept missionizing in a way. But uh, it's meant primarily to be an artwork. And if it happens to bring people closer to reading the scripture, well, that's fine. But my job is to make an undeniably Jewish art. And uh, this is simply the vehicle I'm using for it. The Amen six- to that. Amen, brother. The 613 by Archie Rand. Final question. Who's the best painter you're sure none of us has heard of? Mark Greenwald. Mark Greenwald. All right. Thank you, Archie. I'm sorry we don't have two more hours. All right. Here, stay right there for a second. Any Mazel Tovs or prayers for the week for our kind listening audience? Stephanie? I have a Mazel Tov and a prayer. Um, It's for the Tablet Print Magazine team. Um, We are working on our second issue, which is our Purim issue, and we'll be out in uh, March. Nice. And if people want it, they can still text us. They can text Tablet to 66866. Liel, any prayers or Mazel Tovs? I have a Mazel Tov uh, to one of my favorite people in the world uh, on his third, fourth, eighth marriage, uh, uh, Rabbi Rupert Murdoch, uh, (laughs) who is uh, betrothed to Jerry Hall. Jerry, uh, you don't always get what you want, but hopefully right now you'll get what you need. Sticking in the musical vein, my my prayer for the week is that all the people who need music to get through whatever it is they're going through find their David Bowie. We love mail. If you have thoughts, comments, praise, or questions, please send them to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. We might read them on the air. Unorthodox is edited by Julie Subrin and produced by Sarah Ivry. Our rabbinic supervision this week is by Rabbi Benjamin Shalva, whose new book, Spiritual Cross-Training, is a must-have hippie Jewish text of the season. His website is wanderingrabbi.com. Kosher Slaughtering is by Ziggy Stardust. Our website is tabletmag.com, and our music is by Golem. Shalom, friends. <laughs>